0: Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Al Gore's Senate Testimony, ABC News, PBS, the BBC, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, and On the Media. You'll think for a second that this one's a rerun, but it's not.
1: My father served uh, here in this chamber, and uh, I was reflecting this morning... Uh, on uh, the differences that have occurred since he first came to Washington in 1938. And uh, there are all kinds of jokes about the hot air on Capitol Hill. I'm not going to make those jokes, but I am going to refer to the air on Capitol Hill because when he came here in 1938, there were around about 300 parts per million of CO2 in the air that he and his colleagues in this uh, Senate breathed. And today it's 383 parts per million. It didn't really go above 300 parts per million for at least a million years back, maybe longer, but in the uh, Antarctic ice record, that's about as far back as they can go. And uh, even though the Earth has gone through all these... uh, big swings in natural cycles. The CO2 content never went above 300 parts per million in all that time. And just in the short span of time from my father's first service in the capital here and uh, today, uh, it's gone up a, a dramatic amount. And more CO2 means warmer temperatures. There really should be no doubt about that. That's been known for 180 years. And for at least 100 years, they've known roughly how much the temperature would go up uh, with what concentrations of extra CO2. For most of human history, we lived on uh, the harvested uh, energy that came from the sun, and it was a net energy balance. And then uh, with the beginning of the use of uh, coal and then oil and other fossil fuel supplies, uh, we began to, uh, to, to use the accumulated uh, reservoirs of hundreds of millions of years' worth of accumulated solar energy. And, of course, that meant returning carbon to the atmosphere in very large quantities. And from the early days uh, of that period, uh, there were a few scientists who said, wait a minute, that's going to have some consequences. And uh, it did. And it has now reached a point where we've literally uh, changed the radiative balance between the Earth and the Sun, and the scientists who study global warming uh, gained a lot of their expertise by looking at the other planets in the solar system. And uh, Mars has just one percent of the Earth's atmosphere, and the temperature is not 15 degrees centigrade or 59 Fahrenheit; it's uh, 55 below zero on a- average because the CO2 doesn't trap the heat. Venus, by contrast, has much more CO2, and the Temperatures above the boiling point of lead, and it rains sulfuric acid. Not the kind of weather forecast you'd want to see in the morning. Uh, and it's not because Venus is closer to the sun, because it's much hotter than Mercury, even though Mercury's right next to the sun. It's the CO2. This is uh, extremely well established, well understood, and well known. Senator Boxer, I I, want to start off by saying that um, there's really hardly any way to overestimate or overstate the degree of hope that people out in our country have because of what you're doing, because of what this new Senate and Congress, everybody hopes, will, will do. This is not a normal time. We are, we are facing a planetary emergency. And I'm fully aware that that phrase sounds shrill to many people's ears. But it is accurate. The relationship between humankind and planet Earth has been radically altered in a very short period of time. And what, what would make us believe that we could go through these changes and not have an impact on, on the planet? We've quadrupled human population in less than 100 years, from 1.6 billion in 1900 to uh, 6.56 billion today. And that's uh, stabilizing of its own accord as girls are educated and women are empowered and Girls and women gain literacy, and as family planning that's culturally acceptable is made more widely available in every nation, and most importantly, as infant mortality goes down and uh, maternal and infant uh, health standards go up, the birth rates I mean, the death rates come down first, and then after a few years, the birth rates come down, and the population of the earth is stabilizing. But with a four times increase in less than a century, our impact on the planet has been uh, dramatically changed. Secondly, and more importantly, the technologies we have at our disposal today are thousands of times more powerful than any that our grandparents had available to them. And that makes all of our activities more effective and productive, but it also makes us uh, sometimes uh, like the proverbial bull in a china shop, and we're capable of doing damage that we're not always uh, fully aware that we're doing and of course the common assumption is the earth is so big we couldn't possibly have a lasting harmful impact on it but the most vulnerable part of the earth's ecological system the scientists tell us is the atmosphere it's so thin the number of molecules is uh... known They say it's 10 to the 44, which is above my pay grade, but it sounds like a big number. But compared to what we're able to put into it every hour of every day now, it's not that big. Just a few miles from here to the top of the sky before we can't breathe anymore. And so we're, we're changing its composition. We're putting 70 million tons every day of this global warming pollution into the Earth's atmosphere. And as you noted, uh, Madam Chair, 25 million tons go into the oceans every day. And they're lit- that's literally making the oceans more acidic. But where the atmosphere is concerned, that extra CO2 is retaining in the atmosphere much more of the outgoing infrared that normally escapes back into space and keeps the normal healthy balance uh, within which humankind has developed and within which all of our civilization has evolved and all the cities have been located and all the ports and the places where the rain can be predicted to fall reliably enough for agriculture. And we're putting all those patterns uh, at risk. The 10 hottest years ever measured in the record have been since 1990. 20 of the 21 hottest years have been since in the last 25 years. The hottest year of all was 2005. The hottest year of all in the U.S. was 2006.
2: All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces.
3: does it take to screw in a light bulb just one at mike tidwell's maryland home out with the old and in with those strange looking but energy saving
4: compact fluorescents dramatically less money you're spending for electricity and you fight
0: global warming it's pretty simple
3: 128 years ago thomas edison invented the incandescent bulb that would light up the world but they aren't very efficient That makes them perfect for easy-bake ovens, because 90% of the power sent to an incandescent bulb is wasted as heat. Good for making cupcakes, not light. Even the people who make these bulbs will tell you they use a lot of electricity. Watch this electric meter spin when we turn on an incandescent light. Switch it off, turn on the fluorescent, and it runs dramatically slower. In fact, the fluorescent is four times as efficient. Which is why there is a growing movement to phase out the old bulbs within a decade. Australia has passed a law. California is considering a
5: law. So once we make the shift roughly 10 years from now, we'll eliminate the need for about 50 to 75 coal-burning power plants, and we'll cut our nation's electric bill by over $10 billion a year.
3: That made business sense for Walmart. It changed out all its bulbs in its stores and wants customers to do the same. So the country's top retailer, hoping to sell 100 million fluorescents, has joined with the Internet giant Yahoo to create the 18-second coalition, named for the time it takes to change a light bulb. And today, Phillips, the world's largest bulb maker, joined utilities and environmentalists, talk about strange bedfellows, to declare it is time to pull the plug on incandescence.
6: To uh, retire your first child is a, is a very difficult decision. With four
3: billion light sockets in the U.S., the chances of Edison's old bulbs surviving are dimming. David Curley, ABC News, Washington.
7: to love
2: Welcome to the press conference. The negotiations were long, stretching late into the night. This morning, scientists outlined a grim picture at a news conference. Steve Schneider was one of the report's lead authors. Don't be
6: poor in a hot country. Don't live in Hurricane Alley. Watch out about being on the coasts or in the Arctic. It's bad idea to be up on high mountains with your glaciers melting and losing your water supply. And if you're in a Mediterranean climate, you're going to have a fire season in the summer. It's really going to be
2: a problem. Today's release capped off five days of meetings between scientists and political representatives. They disagreed about just how severe a crisis global warming is. The report is called Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. It was compiled by experts from more than 120 nations participating in the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In February, this same group determined humankind was responsible for global warming.
8: What they've done now is finally established that at the global level, there is an anthropogenic, a man-made climate signal coming through on plants, animals, water, and ice.
2: The main conclusion of today's report? Countries producing the most greenhouse gases, like the U.S. and China, won't bear the biggest burden of warmer temperatures. Instead, that will fall on poorer countries with fewer resources to adapt. Most of those countries are along the equator.
9: The poor are certainly going to be the worst sufferers, and poor not only in the poorest countries, but poor even in the rich countries. That's due in part to climate of extremes forecast by the scientists.
2: Drier areas will become more arid, causing crop failure and forests to become dried up. Three billion people will face water shortages. All of this, they expect, will produce a refugee crisis ...of unimaginable proportions. But for countries closer to the poles, that dry trend will reverse. Those areas will instead have heavier downpours and flooding, and mountain glaciers and snow will melt at faster rates. That could also cause flooding in Asia's major delta regions and lead to the disappearance of smaller island nations. In the U.S., some agricultural areas will initially benefit from the expected rise in temperatures but coastal cities like New Orleans will become even more vulnerable to flooding. The news for the Earth's flora and fauna was bleak too. Up to 30% of species face extinction if global temperatures continue to rise more than 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, including many that thrive in Australia's Great Barrier Reef. The next report, due out in May, will recommend policies and economic measures to deal with reducing emissions.
0: I really encourage you all to communicate with the show, and there are lots of ways you can do it. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, leave comments on the show notes blog, send emails directly to me at sympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com.
5: My fingers warm,
10: and all I find are souvenirs from better
11: times the. There's been more bad news about the effect of climate change today. Scientists and government officials from around the world have warned that the lives of billions of people will be affected by global warming. A new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, warns of food and water shortages and an increased risk of flooding. And the panel's chairman, Rajendra Pachuri, says people in the developing world will be the most affected. The
9: general message is that it's the poorest of the poor that are going to be the worst hit as a result of climate change. This would happen progressively because as the temperature goes up and the the intensity of... Climate uh, change takes place and increases. The impacts would also uh, become much more severe. So we're really talking about a progression of uh, impacts and vulnerabilities that are going to be spread across the globe.
11: The UN's most senior climate change official is Evo de Boer. He says global warming could result in greater human conflict. What I find very frightening in this report is that it talks about the tens of millions of people living in, in very large cities around the world in low-lying coastal areas and what's going to happen to those people if we get sea level rise. Secondly, the, re- the report talks about more drought, more water shortages in Africa and is that going to lead to increased conflict. So I think what this report is, is showing that potentially a combination of factors in the future could actually lead to, to conflict and the changes in global temperatures will also affect wildlife. Dr. Lara Hansen is from the conservation group WWF International.
7: Well, the fascinating thing is that now we're not just talking about the projections, we're actually already seeing the effects. And we see the effects affecting biodiversity and wildlife from the poles to the equator. In the Arctic, we see polar bear populations declining as the sea ice that they rely on melts away. In the Antarctic, we see penguin populations moving and declining for very similar reasons. In the tropical regions, we see coral reefs bleaching. In the temperate regions, we see high-elevation species like the American pica, which is a relative of the rabbit, declining in number because it simply gets too warm for them.
11: Well, in Mexico, scientists say that the effects of global warming are already all too evident. One area called Pazcuaro, northwest of Mexico City, is famous for its lake, but experts say it's drying up the victim of rising temperatures Duncan Kennedy reports On a boat trip across its tranquil
8: waters and illuminated by the orange of a sunset Lake Pazcuaro lives up to its status as a Mexican ecological jewel But this is a jewel with flaws A jewel that's also an illusion And what is that illusion? Well in a sense I'm walking on it because vast tracts of Lake Paxquara have now simply dried up and I'm walking on what used to be the lake bed. For hundreds and hundreds of metres all the way around the lake the land is dried to the bone. The local people and local experts say this is a process that has been going on for 20 or 30 years. When you actually get to the water's edge, after walking several hundred metres, the water itself at this point is pretty dirty. It actually looks dead. And if I just grab a bit of the earth here, it just crumbles in my hand. It's so dried up. Adriana Ortega Torres is the region's environment director. She also grew up here. And for her and other experts, the cause of the water loss is clear. She says it is climate change. Over the past 20 years or so, 30% of the water has gone. It's been made worse by deforestation and agriculture, she says, but global warming is the key. Back on the lake, you can see the reclining shoreline. The area used to get around 300 days of rain a year. Now locals say you're lucky to get 150. So the lake is starved of supplies. When you get to the middle of the lake, like I am here, the water is grey and deep. And on the far side, you can see the rushes swaying in the wind. I'm actually on the boat of Diego Flores, who's worked these waters for 48 years from childhood... To manhood, there is no one better to speak of the changes that Lake Paxquara has seen.
10: Diego says he's
8: worried for his children and his grandchildren. He says he doesn't know what will happen, but he says it's sad that the lake is no longer the spectacle of his youth. Lake Pazcuaro isn't the only area in Mexico identified as a location of climate change. And whether Mexicans are the victims of their own energy usage policies or those of others is impossible to say. But parts of this country are being redrawn in a way that's leaving a landscape literally drying to death.
0: This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You, too, can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. you.
2: For more on the report and the negotiations that produced it, I'm joined by two lead authors from the United States who participated in the conference. Joel Smith is a former deputy director of the Environmental Protection Agency, and joins us from Brussels. And Michael Oppenheimer, professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. He left Brussels early this morning, and joins us from new york and professor oppenheimer the last report in february concluded that man had contributed to climate change over the last half century does this report sort of begin there and then take it further
12: that's right the last report concluded that there's a broad man-made climate change afoot and this report says that that man-made climate change is already having significant effects both on natural ecosystems and species and on the human environment, the, uh, the built environment, society, agriculture, and so forth. Uh, what's more troubling, perhaps, is that, th- is that these consequences are going to grow with time and are, are, are become significant at relatively low levels of warming. Changes in the agricultural viability in countries uh, at the, uh, that are near the equator, a sea level rise and the consequences along the coast, for instance, effects on natural ecosystems like coral reefs, health effects, for instance, more heat waves. Those are all things that start to happen at relatively low warming, and this presents policymakers with such some stark choices: how much warming are we going to accept? In fact, how much is inevitable, and where are we going to stop it? And by reducing the emissions that are causing the climate change.
2: Joel Smith, both you gentlemen have been up for most of the last two days. Why was it necessary to uh, negotiate the language through the night? What were some of the sticking points and what countries were doing the sticking?
13: Well, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, is a complicated process which basically involves a buy-in between governments and the researchers. So we, uh, scientists and researchers, have been working for the last four or five years Writing a rather extensive report, over a thousand pages, on impacts of climate change. Michael and I were in the same chapter on key vulnerabilities. That those thousand pages or so were boiled down by us to about a hundred-page technical summary. That was then boiled down to a twenty-page report, the summary for policymakers that was released today. What's different about this process is that report is actually adopted by the governments that participated in this meeting line by line so they get to work with us on the science Uh, we work with them on how to interpret it they can rewrite text Uh, and at the end of the day it's the governments that operate and it's by consensus so basically everybody has to agree there was a lot to work through there were a lot of difficult issues and we ended up having just taking through the night actually ending about ten o'clock this morning but we got through it and we do
2: we did produce a summary for policymakers were big greenhouse gas producers trying to weaken the language of the final document during these negotiations
13: well countries came in with different perspectives Uh, i think in particular at saudi arabia and china uh... some cases did try to didn't agree shall we say with uh... the the recommendations of some of the scientists levels of confidence some of the findings there are other countries that uh... were quite happy with what we're doing even pushing us to uh...
2: say more than we felt comfortable Michael Oppenheimer, uh, Stéphane Algat of France's International Center for Research on the Environment and Development concluded at the end that the document was much less quantified and much vaguer and much less striking than it could have been. Do you agree with that? Some of the
12: numbers were taken out and others were made uh, vaguer. And some of it, I'll go a little further than Joel and say that there were some moments when I was convinced that the big fossil fuel countries, you might say, particularly China and Saudi Arabia, China dependent on coal, Saudi Arabia, big oil supplier, and at moments our own country uh, seemed to be wanting to uh, take the teeth out of parts of the document. On the other hand, I think by and large, the U.S. government played a constructive role, but the document is, uh, in some aspects, probably weaker than some of the scientists would have it. But on looking it over, Carefully after I got off the plane, I thought it's a, if I might say so myself, I think it's quite a good piece of work. It's informative. It lays out for governments what are the vulnerabilities, where are there going to be changes that they have to get prepared to be ready to adapt to, where are there changes to society, like in agriculture or health, that are so threatening that they ought to cut emissions uh, in order to avoid those sorts of changes. These are very good, if not very precise in some cases,
2: guidelines. Joel Smith, by agreeing to the final language, do member governments actually oblige themselves to do anything about these problems? Well,
13: (laughs) That that remains to be seen, but a key part of this process is that the, it's a it's a report of the government, so they can't just simply say it is a report of the scientists and walk away from it. They have bought into it, and I and I agree with Michael. I think for the most part, it it, it I, I, many of the government comments, I think actually in many cases actually improve the text. A lot of times, what you're arguing about is how do we interpret particular studies, how much weight do we put on them, do we give higher confidence or lower confidence if a study estimates that. 321 million people are going to be at risk do we do we really believe it's 321 million or do we say well there's a lot of uncertainty maybe it's a, it's a few hundred million it was those kind of discussions to try to to frame it right and i should say in terms of the process in most cases we do get to give our views about how far the interpretations of the science should be taken and if things have been taken farther than we're comfortable we we get to let the governments know and then try to work things out
12: yeah, professor go ahead Piero. I was going to say, in fact, we have a veto power in some sense. If a government tries to introduce something which is clearly at odds with the science, uh, we can stop it right there.
2: Well, Professor, do you sense a change in urgency? Do you sense a change in tone? Is this uh, a kind of report that wouldn't have been possible uh, a couple of years ago before the scientific consensus had firmed around this issue? Look, there's clearly been a progression,
12: and one of the key things about this one is there's a general feeling that the effects on ecosystems and society, the effects that humans are dealing with have come on quicker than most scientists expected the last time we went through this exercise about six years ago. And I think that's created an uneasiness among scientists that this is a problem that really needs to be focused on by governments. And as a result, I think the document is more focused and has more teeth than it otherwise would. Joel Smith, how about
13: you? Now I agree. In fact,
12: I think perhaps
13: the most historic aspect of this document is the linking of humans to the impacts we're seeing. So, as you mentioned, the the first report that came out in January, the science report, uh, gave very high confidence that humans are causing climate change. What this report now said is that that change in climate we're causing is affecting species, uh, glaciers, uh, river flow, snowpacks, many aspects of our physical and natural systems, and even to some extent society, although that's a little harder to document at this point. And that, that is historic. That link has not been made by the IPCC. That is quite a significant finding. We are essentially changing the natural environment.
2: And, Professor, making some places eventually impossible to live in or less possible to well, live in?
12: It's clear that along the coasts, in many places, human beings are simply going to have to withdraw. It's not possible to build seawalls everywhere. It's not possible to keep pouring sand on every beach. It's not possible to build coastal defenses. It just gets too expensive. There are places now that are above water that are simply not going to exist in the future.
2: They're going to be below water. So Joel Smith, do you think the next report, which deals with solutions, will get that much more attention? we'll have to see i think one thing
13: i want to add too is i think another finding besides this observations i think many of us are now more pessimistic about the the future impacts that are going to come over coming decades than we were uh... in the assessment just five six years ago the one uh, that i participated in uh... we're now seeing much more evidence of climate change as michael mentioned we're seeing more extreme events the european heat wave which killed some uh, tens of thousands of people in europe was actually Uh, linked to climate change. We're seeing more intense rainfall, more intense hurricanes, the species effects we're seeing. We're also more pessimistic about what the future may bring in terms of damages from extreme events. And then uh, one of Michael's areas of specialties is what we call sort of singular events, these large changes such as melting of the ice sheets. Um, We we could be triggering those with a few more degrees of warming and that could lead to very long-term serious consequences.
2: Joel Smith joined us from Brussels, Michael Oppenheimer from New York. Gentlemen, thank you both.
1: Thanks for having us.
14: Climate change experts from 120 countries have started a major international conference in Bangkok on ways to slow global warming without jeopardizing economic growth. The meeting of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change aims to define methods for cutting carbon emissions and to assess what they'll cost. In an interview with the BBC, the chairman of the IPCC, Rajendra Pachurai, said he thought countries like China and India would need much firmer and more serious action from the West before they would take measures of their own.
9: It's not likely that you will see China and India jumping into the ring and saying, yes, we are going to take certain actions just because we feel... the world needs action overall. Therefore, I would say that the developed countries will necessarily have to come up with some firmer actions to show that they are doing what is expected of them. And then I'm sure the emerging market economies will also start taking certain measures.
14: Well, in the United States, the Bush administration is now facing calls to issue federal regulations on carbon emissions following a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. The court ruled earlier this month that the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, can regulate emissions from vehicles. Now states like California, which have passed their own greenhouse gas legislation, are threatening to sue the agency if it doesn't act swiftly to help them meet their targets. As James Kumrasamy reports, it's the latest sign of how a White House, which has been sceptical about climate change issues, is coming under increasing pressure to act.
15: I'm standing in a landfill on the outskirts of Warrington in Virginia. There are two diggers, one large white one, a smaller yellow one, that are shoveling Piles of rubbish which are being brought here every few minutes by huge trucks. There are crows circling overhead. And on the edge of the landfill, I can see a series of pipes which have been put here recently. They have been installed to capture the methane gas that is being given off by the rubbish. And if all goes according to plan, this landfill will be at the heart of what will be America's first ever carbon-neutral town.
9: Up until now, people have just been sitting on the sidelines... Waiting for somebody else to try this new technology, and if it works, then they'll take it. Well, somebody's got to put their foot in the water and test this out. The man putting his foot in the water, or more
15: accurately, into huge piles of stinking rubbish, is the mayor of Warrington, George Fitch, a businessman known for taking eye-catching risks. He famously took a Jamaican bobsleigh team to the Winter Olympics, an event that inspired the film Cool Runnings but now it's global warming that he's tackling, aiming to turn waste into electricity and ethanol to make this conservative rural town of 8,000 energy independent.
9: Whether or not you believe in climate change, as a political leader, you must do this. It just makes good economic, commercial sense, because what you're doing in protecting the environment for future generations is you're also protecting a community that's going to attract businesses.
15: That's the kind of argument that appears to be winning over the locals. By and large, they've warmed to the mayor's green initiative. That sea change is also apparent on a state level, the best-known example being California's law that requires carbon emissions to be cut by a quarter by 2020. And now it's creating waves here on Capitol Hill where the democratically controlled Senate Environment Committee is urging the Bush administration to help states such as California meet their goals by issuing regulations on greenhouse gases. They've been hugely encouraged by a recent Supreme Court ruling, which said the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, can regulate carbon emissions from vehicles. I accept the decision, and now my focus is... Did you think it was a legitimate
12: argument being made by the other side?
16: Uh, again, I accept the court's decision, and I'm moving forward with. Well, I'm asking. I'm not I'm asking you about going forward. I'm
12: asking you going back. I mean, that's the focus of my question. And the question is, <laughs> what did you that. think then? Did you think that this was a credible argument? Did you think that these were, you know, crazy people? That there was
10: kind of, you know, a wild idea that you didn't. Need to
15: that's Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse questioning the head of the EPA, Stephen Johnson. Many of the committee members accused the administration of dragging its feet on this issue, a charge I put to Stephen Johnson himself.
13: This is a very significant decision that the Supreme Court made, and I think that it's only the responsible thing to do is to evaluate it very carefully.
15: What, for you, is the the main significance for the EPA of the decision?
13: Well, I think the major major significance was the Supreme Court defining it as a pollutant. Uh, And then, once defined as a pollutant, then that triggers, or may trigger, uh, parts of the Clean Air
8: Act.
15: Triggers or may trigger? According to Democrats, the Court's ruling makes it absolutely clear that it does administration, they say, may no longer deny the human role in climate change, but it does remain reluctant to act, bringing up issues such as a need for China and India to cap carbon emissions as well. The Environment Committee's chairwoman is California Senator Barbara Boxer.
7: Since when do we wait for China to do the right thing before we act, whether it's in foreign policy or labor regulations or environment or anything else? So get out behind China, get out from behind India, and let's get going.
15: But whatever happens on a federal level, the state and local initiatives are multiplying. More and more American companies, too, believe that regulation is inevitable and are preemptively getting in on the environmental act, encouraging news for former congressman Philip Sharp, who heads the energy think tank Resources for the Future.
2: The U.S. is starting to
15: move on multiple fronts. And while it clearly has not been in the
13: lead and whatnot, once things get rolling here, frankly, for many of us, it is a matter of national pride that we not be uh, so far behind the eight ball, uh, apart from the seriousness of the problem.
15: Out in Warrenton, there's a sense that their plans for waste-generated power put them ahead of the curve. History has shown that states and local communities have been laboratories for change in America, and history appears to be repeating itself.
2: The
10: Bush administration lost a Supreme Court case five to four on an uh, issue involving the EPA.
17: Supreme Court got uh, two in the bottom of the ninth. It was very dramatic.
10: Yeah, and, and and it came in favor of the good guys, so everybody was happy. Alberto
17: Gonzalez blew the save. <laughs> uh,
10: which is not unusual, of course. Uh, so anyway, he, here's the bottom line on this. It's a complicated case, and there are a number of issues. And uh, on some of the issues, I don't think the conservatives are way off base. Um, again, I'm a little conservative judicially, so take that in mind. Uh, but uh, the states are suing the government, saying, hey, will you, for the love of God, do something, right? and one of the issues is do the states have the right to demand that the federal government do something i'm not convinced they do that's where the that's a tricky question for me but the supreme court ruled yes they do massachusetts california etc can get the epa to do something now they say hard cases make bad law and this is kind might be one of those situations and should the epa have the right to set its own rules man i'm kind of tempted to say they should in this case, the Supreme Court said no, that they, they stepped in. And, and the reason they stepped in was the, – and the reason this was a hard case was because the EPA said absurd things like uh, carbon dioxide doesn't really have anything to do with greenhouse no. gases. But that's just – that's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And then they said, ah, we're going to leave it voluntary to the industry. And the industry is like, you can't – the industry even says you can't leave it voluntarily to us. We'll never do it. You have to force all of us to do it. Otherwise, none of us individually would do it and take the competitive hit on it. And that's crazy talk. Nobody believes that. And then, third of all, the EPA refused to do anything. Like, if they had done something, the Supreme Court, what it always does, and a lot of people miss this nuance, even though it's so obvious, is it balances rights. Balance. Hey, look, you got a constitutional right here and a constitutional right over here, or you got a government saying, "Hey, I really need to do this, but it's weighed against another constitutional right, etc." And they balance. And here, the reason that they ruled this way is on one side of the balance, you had nothing. The EPA refused to do anything, so Supreme Court's like, "Well,
17: I can't balance that." You gotta do something. Yeah, but here's why, let me just real quick why I don't agree with you on, on the balancing in, in, in in this regard and why I don't think the conservatives have a point and it's essentially because of what you just said. There's some, there's an excellent chance that, that, that Massachusetts and California would not have sued the EPA if they had not said, yeah, we're not going to enforce the Clean Air Act. If Mm -hmm. they had not just shrugged their shoulders. Because it would have been worked out because some sanity would have involved EPA policy Mm -hmm. under any other president including Republican presidents no so, we agree we yeah, agree so I mean the
10: Supreme Court at this I would have voted the same way look the bottom line was their hands are tied here the EPA flat out says we you know we won't enforce the, our enforcement of the Clean Air Act our interpretation of enforcement is doing absolutely nothing and the Supreme Court says well that's not a legitimate interpretation I'd have given you almost anything else right but you're so extreme that you you force my hands no you can't say I'll My enforcement is no enforcement. Well, voluntary. Let's hope it works out for the best. So Massachusetts, California, and 11 11 states all in all are right. You need to enforce this thing because then otherwise you're going to have harm to Massachusetts, California, etc. You put yourself in stupid places. Yes, I think you know it.
7: The Supreme Court has ruled the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate the emission of greenhouse gases linked to global warming. In a five to four decision, the court ruled the EPA violated the Clean Air Act by improperly declining to regulate new vehicle emission standards to control the pollutants that scientists say contribute to global warming. It's the first high court decision in a case involving global warming and is seen as a defeat for the Bush administration, which has refused to view carbon dioxide as an air pollutant subject to EPA regulation. Before we talk about the global climate divide between rich and poor countries, let's go to this U.S. Supreme Court decision that has rocked the Bush administration. Can you talk about its significance?
16: Well, there was only one time uh, that George Bush, as far as I know, ever described carbon dioxide, the, the main greenhouse gas, as a pollutant. Uh, that was when he was running for president. He uh, pr- pledged to limit limit emissions of this gas, uh, along with other stuff, from power plants. But then right after he got elected, he uh, backpedaled away from that campaign pledge. And then from, from that point onward, for the administration, the idea that carbon dioxide might be a pollutant, like, like uh, lead or, or sulfur dioxide, the stuff that we're more familiar with, uh, as harmful substance has, har- harmful some substances kind of went away. They just it was a bright line in the sand, and there, anything that looked like it would um, move in that direction, they fought really, uh, really hard. And and now the Supreme Court has kind of just sort of taken away that whole uh, presumption that that, it, that that there's some reason not to look at carbon dioxide as a hazard uh, when it's in excess amounts. Which is this whole question: how much carbon dioxide is too much? It has gone away. The Supreme Court has essentially said the EPA. Um, can't just sort of uh, say, we're not, we're not going to examine that question, uh, particularly in this case because EPA said, contended two things. They said the science isn't there, that there's risk, and they also said that, um, that they could make a choice based on policy considerations. The uh, Supreme Court justices have basically said it is, there is a clear case for, uh, for risk uh, the, um, um, and that the, the EPA is required, essentially, to take a fresh look.
7: Can you talk about who voted which way, the five-to-four decision, the significance of uh, Roberts joining with Alito and Thomas and Scalia in voting against or for well, the Bush the administration.
16: administration? The significance essentially is that that there is still a big chunk of... Um, so there are people who are aligned with industry. There are people who just purely don't believe that... That a gas like carbon dioxide, the bubbles in beer can actually be in the same basket with things like um, sulfur dioxide or mercury and and I'm not sure there's a pure ideological um divide on the court on this i I do think that the science is not is not easy and even during during the uh the arguments uh, Scalia said uh, there was at one point it was one an amazing moment during the uh the uh, the arguments over this um Scalia, there was some confusion about the troposphere versus the uh, the stratosphere and, and Scalia said something like uh, troposphere stratosphere that 's pro- that 's why i don 't want to have to deal with this global warming problem <laughs> it 's complicated, and um, I do feel that in this country there 's still a, a big block of people i get I got huge amounts of email uh, when these stories have run the last couple of days of mine on ad- adapting to warming from people who just don't don 't even get the basics that Carbon dioxide makes the world warmer than it would otherwise be. If you have more of it in the atmosphere, that makes the world warmer. On that point, and the Supreme Court obviously now has echoed this. There, there is simply no um, knowledgeable disagreement in the in the scientific community. Even people, even Michael Crichton, at a recent debate in New York City, the the author of *State of Fear*, you know, which says that all environmentalists are, are fear mongers. Um, he and Richard Lindzen, another a scientist at MIT, who has uh, attacked alarmist portrayals of the climate problem. They both agreed that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. You put more of it in the air. It warms the world. And then it all comes down to judgments about how dangerous that is and what you do about it.
7: We're talking to Andrew Refkin, an award-winning science reporter with the New York Times. Now, explain, though, exactly what this means, for example, for California.
16: Well, the reason—well, California is trying to restrict uh, vehicle emissions, of carbon dioxide, and they they claim they have the authority to do so, and that that this case actually relates to that one, and in, in that uh, now California will probably have an easier time uh, moving ahead on that on that um, on its own efforts to do that locally. One thing that was really telling, I thought, in reading the U- USA Today this morning, uh, the, their story on this case, the uh, the uh, the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers, the main. A lobbying group in Washington for the auto companies, which had been stridently, you know, fighting the idea that CO two was regulate a, a regulatable gas, um, now they've com- immediately switched to we need a we need an economy wide standard for limiting it. They're they're basically you see this or I've seen this in twenty years of writing about climate change, this kind of stepwise defense. It's just like an army defending a, in a retreat. Um, you, you kind of hold your ground, hold your ground, then move back to the next safe defense and. And you can see that dynamic playing out here.
7: What about the role of the auto industry in all of this and the whole issue of how federal scientists' research has been suppressed, as we saw recently in a congressional hearing?
16: Well, um, for for years I've been exposing in a series of stories in the Times uh, specific instances where People who had worked for the oil companies or people who were you know, political appointees who had worked in, in the Bush re-election re- campaign were expressly trying to res- restrain scientists who felt that global warming was a problem and that carbon dioxide is, is a hazard from from speaking their views. And this came to the fore just this, a few weeks ago in, in a couple of congressional hearings. And there, uh, too, you see this... Um, uh, there has been some change. Uh, the NASA, one of the agencies where that had happened, has changed their policies. Uh, NOAA came out with some new policies that scientists still aren't very happy with. The, uh, that's the agency that studies the climate directly. And, uh, but scientists that I talk to now feel much freer to speak their minds uh, and not ne- necessarily have a minder on the telephone anymore, as was the norm at NOAA for a long time. So I do get a sense of... Um, the ball rolling here in a way that that in 20 years on this, covering this issue, I haven't seen.
0: There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support.
14: Some consensus on climate change. Eight world leaders agree to a centerpiece year, of the America G.A. Next year, America and other summit.
13: nations will set a long-term global goal
8: for reducing greenhouse gases. Further than he ever has been agreeing to a, quote, substantial cut.
5: This week's G8 summit in Germany provided a rare face-to-face discussion among the world's economic powers on the problem of climate change. It also provided a notable change in rhetoric from President Bush, who advanced a plan that, while not exactly embracing absolute targets, would commit the United States to reducing carbon emissions. Why the about-face from the man who has turned his back on global partnerships like the Kyoto Agreement? One hint came from recently inaugurated French President Nicolas Sarkozy, who before he left for Germany consulted on climate issues with former Vice President Al Gore. Could it be that President Bush has been backed into a political corner with the help of Gore's book and movie About Global Warming, and Inconvenient Truth?, If the president has been forced by public opinion to show leadership on climate change, how much credit goes to an atmosphere-hugging documentary for putting him there? We asked Andrew Revkin, longtime environment reporter for The New York Times. Andrew, welcome back to the show.
18: It's always a
16: pleasure.
5: Before we get started on this week's events, I, I want to call your attention to a piece you did in 2001 after it became apparent that the White House was of no mind to sign on to the Kyoto Protocols. It said that the administration is unlikely to do anything, whether it acts, quote, depends on domestic political pressure. Was it in fact domestic political pressure that motivated the president to make this turnaround?
18: As I wrote in 2001, you know, clearly they bet on inertia and now they're basically being pushed to act by the political imperative that was not there for six years. There was a preference to stick with the status quo, as long as the American people chose to stick with the status quo. When I wrote about the, the last round of U.N. climate science reports back in 2000, 2001, the stories were buried inside the paper, and this time they were all lead stories. The pattern is that for six years, the American people largely showed indifference on the climate question, and suddenly now, the last year or two, there's been this burst of focus on it.
5: Gee, and let's see, what happened in the last year or two Well, there was a report on global climate change that showed a scientific consensus beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, There was continuing repercussions over the government's failures in the Katrina hurricane and its aftermath. And, oh, that other thing, an inconvenient truth, the Al Gore book and documentary, which turned out to be something along the lines of a blockbuster. How important was it?
18: Oh, I I think it's hard to find... uh a way to discount its importance, not only did millions of people either buy the book or buy the DVD or see it in theaters, but then it got a a huge amount of extra coverage in the the news weeklies and on TV and every talk show. And so, one way or the other, it would be hard to find an American who wasn't at least vaguely aware of it. Katrina happened, but I don't think it would have been linked as powerfully in the public imagination to human-caused climate change if the Gore movie hadn't followed. And and having high oil prices at the same time helped to cement the idea that there's an energy problem underneath the climate problem. So those things together all built to this crescendo. And then uh, the intergovernmental panel findings this year, three different reports, each one just sort of was like a hammer pushing the nail in even further. And that's left us now very little cover for the Bush administration. And lo and behold, here comes a fresh uh, approach to policy.
5: Now, you talk all the time to people in the administration. I'm curious whether you hear any core related grumbling, and not so much about his claims, but about his effects.
18: Well, there's plenty of grumbling about his claims still, for sure. And I haven't so much heard people say, gosh, I wish he hadn't amplified this into such an issue now. In fact, I've heard recently some people have said for the Bush administration, and this is just speculation that there's some utility to making this a big issue now because it distracts from Iraq. It gives it a sense that they're actually consensus building internationally instead of um, being polarizing.
2: A
5: convenient truth. <laughs> Back in happier days for the White House when the president uh, had a lot more political capital to spend, he seemed, along with the, uh, the rest of the Republican Party, to have been able to successfully frame the climate issue as a debate. Is it my ma- imagination, or since at least the movie came out, that the the bottom has fallen out of that argument that the Republicans you know, scarcely even try to make it anymore?
18: Oh, that argument is still very much alive and out there and circulating. It's not so much making it into what you'd call the mainstream media, but it's very much out there for those who choose it. And one of the most telling polls on this came out in January from the Pew Center on the public and the press. They really dug into what people believe and why on climate. And they found, for example, that among Republicans, those with a college degree were much more likely to be skeptical about human-caused global warming than Republicans without a college degree. And they found that Democrats with a college degree were much more conclusively believing that humans were dangerously influencing climate than Democrats without People are in one camp or the other, and new information or more education doesn't actually move you. It actually reinforces the camp that you're in. But that's not reflected so much in what the average network show or even the average newspaper account now, I think, is much more accepted. The idea that the old form of journalism, where you just have one person from each side state their views of the science, and then that means you can go home having done your job,
5: that's gone away. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Andrew Revkin is the environment reporter for The New York Times and author of The North Pole Was Here, which will come out in paperback this fall.
14: circling all around the sun. What a beautiful dream that could flash on the screen in a blink of an eye and be gone
10: from me. U.S. aims to from the Washington Post. U.S. aims to weaken G8 climate change statement. This goes to my point, and I'll explain what it means in a second. It goes to my point of people still forget that Bush is in charge. Like we like look at Bush like as if he's old history. Like oh, remember when those incompetents used to run the you know run the country? No, no, they're still running the country, and they haven't learned a damn thing. I mean, they're doing the same exact thing they've been doing all along so they're at a g8 summit you know the most powerful countries in the world and the europeans even tony blair are like hey we gotta do something about global warming it's panic time let's go up and at them let's at least pass something saying we're gonna do something right what does bush do sends in his our representatives and says
17: nope yeah this statement is too strong it's nope. gonna,
10: yeah. no no we, we won't agree to do anything we won't agree to do anything So, the the part that says it's an actual problem and we got to act and we got to start to have some standards, no, not buying it. Not buying it. So, the whole world, all the scientists, all the governments are saying, we got to go and we got to go now, right? And Bush is saying, nope, you're going to have to wait till I leave because I am obstinate and I refuse to do anything with even a smidgen of intelligence. Well, that's true. I mean, these are among the things it's like. You can't impeach a guy for being an idiot, right? And you can't impeach a guy for being 100% wrong about a policy. You can't. You really can. I don't think you can. I don't think that's a legitimate use of impeachment. But he broke 18 other laws. And impeaching him for that helps us with stuff like this. Because we got do we can't wait another year and a half for things that are emergencies that we need to work on now. People are talking about it's changes beginning you know in five years now you know the, and, and then and what well, the other thing is that people are and when I say people I mean scientists
17: are saying once the changes start we might not be able to reverse them and also if you're if if our goal is you know one of the excuses that the conservatives had about not fighting global warming is like, really, well, like why do we have to do it because India and China won't do it yeah look,
10: they're gonna nobody yeah. else will do it so why do we have to do it and everybody else is saying no we're doing it. We want to do it. Will you, for the love of God, come and join us? How the
17: hell do you claim to be leaders if you won't lead? You want China and, and, and India to do it? Lead and get them to do it. <laughs> you know how the uh,
10: Fox News Channel and the conservatives are thrilled about Nicholas uh, Zarkozy's win? And friends are like, aha, the conservatives won! Yeah, Kasha right. Zarkozy says it is his top priority to get yeah. this done. Because he's like, look, you don't get it, man. People are dying in France. You remember we were, did those stories with the heat waves, and they don't have air conditioning, so they wind up dying. He's like, no, this is the, the world depends on it. We gotta. This is my top priority. The conservative in France, right? Right. And here Bush sends in the guys and sends in the hatchet man. And says, no, 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 no. Look, if I was the Europeans, the, the the article talks about how they're trying to negotiate with us. I wouldn't negotiate. I'm like, we're doing it. You come, you don't come. You're, you know, uh, I, we can't. I know, but uh, we it's like, know the next administration is yeah. going to be with us, so we're going to start and hope you catch up in a I year mean, and I, a half. Look,
17: I, I'm sure there's some truth to that that they probably ought to do that. But it's like the, it's like if you're a, a mob underling, and and the the to the boss of the family is insane, but has all the power. I mean, they're like they have to do, they don't have to do what we say, but they can't hardly act if we don't participate in it.
10: Well, you know what happens then? You, I mean, it, politically speaking, here. You whack him, okay? That's, right, well, and
17: that's impeachment, okay? Right, I've been to other countries, but yeah.
10: Right, I mean, you pressure people
17: to get him the hell out of his office. In the mob, that's an actual hit, right? Well, of and course, in politics, that's impeachment. And here they're just going to you know, They wait it out. They don't have that long to wait. It's weird, though, that France's strategy against the heat wave didn't work, where outside uh, uh, every apartment building that didn't have air conditioning, they would uh, form a line to keep the heat out, uh, an uh, imaginary line from which the heat cannot penetrate.
10: It, they, they had a line of air conditioners set up and they thought for sure the heat can't get around this. The gates,
11: Keith Gates are on your side. I dread it's sunny days, so I meet you at the cemetery gates. Keith Sandy Gates are on your side. Wild, wild, wild is on mine. So we go inside in and we gravely reach. All those lives, where are they now? But with a love and hate and passions just like mine, they were born and then they lived and then they died. Seems so unfair, I want to cry. You, sir, throw some sun salutation to the
7: dog. We've been exploring some of your questions about global warming as part of our series Climate Connections from National Geographic. Now to one family that's already trying to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions. NPR's David Kestenbaum spent some time with them at their home in North Carolina.
4: Scott and Claudia Shepard live in a modest-sized house in a wooded area a few miles from downtown Chapel Hill. They have two adorable kids.
17: Hi, my name is Anya.
4: Anya's six, <laughs> Nadia, age eight. Also a dog. Sammy! Come on. And an old piano they just picked up. What makes them a little unusual is that they are trying to do what all those countries were supposed to do under the Kyoto Accord, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Claudia has tried to get her church involved. Our church had a fast from carbon for Lent. A fast from carbon? uh Uh-huh. So instead of giving up chocolate, you gave up carbon.
5: carbon. Right. You would hang up your laundry to dry or something like that.
4: And, yep, the laundry's out on the back deck. The kids say the clothes get stiff, but they're in favor of saving energy. Nadia can tell you all about the new light bulbs.
15: I'm in the kitchen, and right above me there is a a compact fluorescent light bulb. Those
4: are compact fluorescent light bulbs.
15: That is better than uh, what the regular ones.
4: The family does own a station wagon, but when Scott gets home from work, he's driving their other car, a little Ford Focus.
10: You know, it's, and it's less convenient to have a smaller car, but I use it for commuting. And then also we swap off when Claudia has to drive a further distance than I do.
4: The Shepherds wanted to know how they were doing carbon-wise, and so did we. So we invited Doug Crawford Brown, who directs the Institute for the Environment at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. He arrives in a blue Prius hybrid, though he used to own a Jaguar. One thing he's immediately impressed by is that they haven't cut
6: down the trees. You know, I I see trees around. I see a lot of shade. And given that we're in the south here and cooling costs are a lot higher than heating costs, that's a big first step, too, is just not getting pounded by the the sunlight. He gets a tour of the house. The shepherds
4: tell him they've put in a low-flow showerhead, installed a blanket around the water heater, bought an energy-efficient refrigerator, and resisted buying a larger house. Claudia says she also tries to buy local food that doesn't have to be shipped in trucks. Unfortunately, the strawberries on the kitchen counter came all the way from California. Doug Crawford-Brown says all these
6: things are good, though some count more than others. If I had to pick you know, where the big savings were going to be in a person's life... Uh, In terms of CO2, uh, it's not where you buy your strawberries that it's going to find your way into heaven, I would say. Um, But there's no doubt that there's a lot of CO2 that does go out transporting food all, all around the world. Here are the big
4: things, he says. If you were to draw a pie chart, about half of a typical family's carbon emissions come from heating and cooling the house. Maybe a quarter comes from transportation, driving around, and the final quarter from lights, refrigerators, and electrical stuff. So, given all the things the shepherds are doing... How much carbon dioxide are they producing? Doug Crawford Brown sits down at the kitchen table, where the family has collected
6: their electric bill. Does something. want to operate this calculator for me? Yeah. You want to do that? I need to have 800 times 12. Um,
15: 9,600.
4: They get a break on electricity because the utility company, Duke Energy, uses half nuclear power, which doesn't emit carbon. He also adds up the auto mileage, tallies the natural gas heating bill. In the end, he estimates they produce about 14 metric tons of carbon dioxide a year, enough to fill a
6: volume of maybe nine hot air balloons, which is good. You're down 40% below what the average person in North Carolina is. And I would say, for example, if everybody in the state of North Carolina were at their level as a family in terms of emitting CO2... I think that's a pretty good goal for the next twenty years. But there is also some bad news. Doug Crawford Brown has one more question. What
4: would you guess is the mileage that you fly in a year? Claudia says they take one long flight a year, either to see her family in Germany or to California. They also make a short trip to see Scott's family in New Orleans, and Scott flies a few times a year for business. The numbers go in the
6: calculator and drum roll, and then you can keel over Uh, and you see the number. Yeah, 13. How much? 12.7. 12.7. Okay,
4: 12.7 tons per year. Those flights have essentially doubled the amount of carbon the shepherds put into the air. Scott Shepard goes to check the distance to Germany on a map with a ruler, but there's no escaping it. You can walk to the grocery store, but flying to, say, the West Coast is about the same as driving all those miles. They add up. It's hugely surprising. Yeah, absolutely. It's hugely surprising. it's, It's bad, right? But, you know, we... What are you gonna, you know, if you have family halfway across the world, you you know, you have to see them sometimes. So, I mean, I'll make all kinds of sacrifices elsewhere, but how would I change my flying? I mean, I can't swim there, you know? Yeah,
6: yeah, I know, I know.
4: Doug Crawford Brown gets this kind of reaction a lot, and he's sympathetic. His job, trying to reduce carbon emissions, can involve a lot of travel. He's about to get on a plane to England. And the shepherds should be proud, he says, If everyone lived the way they do, he estimates the U.S. could reduce its carbon emissions by a quarter, maybe more. David Kestenbaum, NPR News.
0: How's it going, everybody? So I know that it's been a little while since we've had a chance to sit and talk like this. This is nice to get back to it. Um, Of course, a lot of time has gone by. A lot of news has piled up. Things have happened. uh, Big things. Big, big things. But uh, I'll get to that in a minute. And first of all, the most important news of the day is that the podcast awards are back Uh, Last year, the Best of the Left was nominated. It was lots of fun. We were up against the Barack Obama podcast, the Democracy Now! podcast, uh, a nationally syndicated radio show, uh, you know, podcast version of their show, and and one other show that I can never remember, and I feel kind of bad, but um, it really doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, of course we lost... But, you know, because the nationally syndicated radio show with hundreds of thousands of listeners won, surprise, surprise, and, um, but we got lots of publicity out of it. Well, publicity's not the right word by any stretch, but uh, we had a lot of people find the show because we were nominated, so I would very much like for that to happen again. Please check out either uh, podcastawards.com, or you can find the link through my site at bestofleftpodcast.com right on the sidebar and uh, only nominate once this is the nomination process not the voting process and you can only nominate a show once last year you could do it once a day and now it's once period so everybody who can hear my voice uh, please check that out it'll it'll help out a lot so, last we spoke, I said lots of things were going on, but I didn't have the time to talk about it, and now I do, so I will. Um, several weeks ago, I made a big deal about needing help from the audience gathering global warming clips. Specifically, I said that it would help us out a lot and, and really be, I think I said, the lifeblood of the show. Well, the short... Version of the story is that I've been hired to produce a new podcast about global warming, and that's why I was asking for global warming clips. Uh, more on that in a minute. Um, first of all, I uh, I do need to apologize, and we'll probably need to continue to apologize for the lack of shows. Um, the uh, The rate of shows has gone down drastically over the past couple of months. It's very unfortunate um i did very silly things like uh get a job i had a full-time job uh for a while um and uh, and i got myself a girlfriend look at that uh, boy that was fun um so uh so i've been very distracted in some very good and some not quite as good ways um but I couldn't, I couldn't be happier, and I will explain more. But uh, just for fun, I'll, I went ahead and included in the uh, enhanced version of the show, if you check out the, the picture right now, this is a picture of uh, Julia and I on the top of the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. on our third date. And I just couldn't be happier, uh, except for the fact that I don't have as much time to produce The Best of the Left. Um... So, getting back to the the new podcast that I'm doing, uh, it actually requires a little bit of backstory. For uh, probably many of you, you recall that I was living in uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland, at uh, at this house owned by Mike Tidwell. If you didn't hear that story, check it out. It's in the episode, uh, The Cherry Blossoms Bloom Earlier Each Year in D.C., and it's a fun story of how I you know, came from Sacramento to Washington and ended up at, uh, in the guest bedroom of a climate activist slash author slash, um, you know, campaign coordinator, etc. So, uh, so I was having a gay old time living at Mike's house and he comes to me one, one day in late April and he says, Hey Jay, so I've got some news for you. I don't know if it'll be, uh, you know, the most welcome news or not, maybe it will be. But, um, Beth is going to be moving in. Beth being his uh, longtime girlfriend who I simply adore. And I say, Oh. And he says, So, you know, we will be happy to do anything we can to help you find a new place. And I said, Oh. Hmm. So, um, so that's how I found out that I was being evicted, and uh, he knows the best possible circumstances to be evicted. Um, you know, he gave me plenty of time to move out. Very low pressure, no big deal, and uh, and I did. I moved out um, just at the um, the end of May, I believe. Yeah, the beginning of June, and uh, and about a week after I moved out, I get a call waking me up at nine in the morning from Mike, and the conversation went something basically like, uh, hey, how's it going? Good. How's the new place? Good. Um, how's Julia? Good. Um, so, you want a job? Yeah, sure. All right, well, um, come on down to the office today, and, uh, and we'll set you up. You'll be my new assistant. I said, all right, well, I'll see you later then. And that's how I got hired full-time as a staff member at the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Uh, that was easy, you know. Um, and uh, and so, actually, what happened is he, he wanted to hire me to do this new podcast about global warming before he hired me on his full-time staff. But I think he figured if he just hired me as full-time staff, he could get a lot more work out of me and then not have to pay me extra for the podcast. So now the podcast titled the World on Fire podcast at worldonfirepodcast.com is now just part of my regular duties as as a staff member there. And um, so for you, as a listener of Best of the Left, it is really not uh, an option so much as a requirement that you check out this new podcast because... If you like this show, I guarantee you're going to like the new show because although you didn't realize it at the time, you just listened to the inaugural episode of World on Fire. It is, uh, yes, you guessed it, exactly the same as The Best of the Left. The only difference being it'll be all about global warming and it will promote the hell out of Seacan because they're paying for it. So um, so check that out, it'll be fun-filled, uh, Best of the Left style, and, and hopefully in the future some extra goodies that, uh, that Best of the Left simply wouldn't be capable of by themselves, but with the support of a network behind me, I think I can do some extra, extra fun stuff for that. So uh, every single one of you needs to subscribe to the new show, and, uh, and we'll start pumping out those new episodes uh, to fill in the gaps when you're not getting enough, uh, best of the left fun. Um, I think that's about it. Um, I think though I will just finish by uh, finishing this show the way it was intended to be finished, and uh, and you will all be the first to hear it. You've been listening to the World on Fire podcast brought to you by the Chesapeake Climate Action Network with the vitally important help of the members of the World on Fire Community Forum. Get all the details about the show, how you can get involved in helping to produce the show, how to subscribe for automatic updates, and all the links from this and all of our episodes from our website. My name's Jay. I'm coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border of Washington, D.C., and I want to thank you for listening to the World on Fire podcast, brought to you by WorldOnFirePodcast.com. World is on
7: fire.